there are places that we go through in the in-between that matter. There are seasons we go through as we transition from one season to the next of the in-between that matter. The children of Israel had a season where they came out of Egypt and they went into a promised land, but there was an in-between. There was a middle place. And how we handle the journey of the in-between will determine our ability to walk into promised places. It was difficult for the children of Israel to wander that desert for 40 years, but I think often about the disciples that went through three days, not 40 years. That there was this in-between place where a price was paid for us but redemption had not yet come. Jesus gave up his life and died on a cross to give us a new covenant, to give us a promise, to give us a hope, to give us transformation, to give us freedom, to break our chains. And he died for that. But there was an in-between place of three days before he was resurrected that I think some of us in our life, we get to a place of in-between. And how we handle the in-between will determine the end. And what I want to do is I want to let you off the hook a little bit. And I want to tell you this. Many times we do not handle transition well. We do not handle the in-between moments where we're waiting on a promise well. The children of Israel didn't do it. The disciples didn't do it well. They walked with him for three years, but broke down in three days. It's amazing how you can break down in three days. It's incredible how you can break down in three days. Don't believe me? Look at the disciples. Jesus dies. He's on the cross. How many disciples were on the cross? Watched him on the cross? One. 120 in the upper room. 12 at the Last Supper. 70 sent out. Sometimes I think we, 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 we watch The Chosen or uh, we read about the 12 and we think that's all the disciples, but there was a lot of them. Jesus showed himself to 500 after his resurrection. But one showed up to watch him on the cross. One of the male disciples. And we see this place where it says that the disciples all scattered. They ran. Peter denies him before he ever goes to the cross. And there is a moment of in-between where, where all hell breaks loose. See, Jesus hadn't yet come back with the keys to hell, death, and the grave. So hell was loose. And they're tested in that moment. In the in-between place, they're tested. And so what happens is, is that Peter denies him. 
The disciples run. They're nowhere to be found. They're not together. And then the resurrection happens. They have lost their hope. They're hurting. They don't know what to think. Three days. And then we read this story. I've mentioned Thomas recently, and I'm going to repeat myself because I think some people need to hear it. But I think Thomas gets a bad rap. Thomas gets called, what, everybody know what, what we would call him now? Yeah. Doubting Thomas. That's his nickname, Doubting Thomas. You know, the Bible calls him the twin. The Bible has a nickname for Thomas. He's called the twin. So some people think he was a twin. It's called the twin. Or maybe that nickname was because he mirrored somebody else. If you've ever watched like The Chosen, you can see really quickly, just in that show, you're like, oh, Thomas and Matthew, they're twins. Every detail, every order, every pre precept upon precept. It was 9.03 in the morning. The sun was at a cool, crisp, clear day. There were three clouds. They, they want every detail. I like the details. I'm okay with that. But Thomas gets called this. He gets called the doubting Thomas. And I think sometimes Thomas gets a bad rap. Why? Because here it is where the disciples are telling him that Jesus has risen and he doesn't believe them, right? He doubts that Jesus has risen. That's why he's called doubting Thomas. But I think it looks different than what we think about. So what happens is, is that the women go to the tomb. They find the tomb empty. An angel comes. And they report back to the disciples that Jesus has risen. Do you know what the disciples' response to that was? Doubt. That's what it was. Let me read this to you. We're in Luke chapter 24, if you have your, your Bible. It says here, in 11, they tell him about Jesus raising and what they had seen at the tomb. And it says, but these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. So we don't just have a doubting Thomas. We have a doubting disciple. That's what it is. It's doubting disciples. And we see them doubt when Mary gives the report. Now, here's the thing. You can gaslight this. And say they just wouldn't believe it because it was a woman given the report. And in that culture, in that time right there, a woman didn't have a testimony. She didn't have the right to be a witness. And so people will assume that they didn't believe because they were the women. And so they doubted that they were women. I don't think that's true. Why don't I think that's true? Because Jesus empowered women. Jesus allowed Mary to worship at his feet, which in Jewish culture, the place at his feet was an honored place where disciples only sat. And it would be a place only males sat. And Jesus allowed Mary to be the closest to him while he taught, which was against the rules. 
Jesus honored women in ministry. The very first person he empowered to go and evangelize was the woman at the well. Jesus empowered women. And so I don't think that's what's happening because the disciples honored women as well. I think what's happening here has nothing to do with who's telling them because we see the exact same situation happen when Thomas is told by the disciples, no, we saw him. So Mary says, no, he's resurrected. And they say, nope, we don't believe it. But then we see this. It says uh, in 13, now behold, two of them that very day, two of the disciples were traveling to a village named Emmaus, a distance of about seven miles. Ooh, someone say seven miles. We talked about running last week. We're talking about walking this time. Some of you aren't ready to run. You just need to walk for a while. Some of you are not ready to sprint. You just need to take it a little slow. Right? You're not going to spend 12 hours devouring the word all day long. But you could pray for 12 minutes, right? Some of you need to learn how to cultivate a walk in your life of spending time with the Lord. Seven miles from Jerusalem. They were speaking with one another about the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Yeshua, Jesus, himself approached and and began traveling with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Their eyes were closed. Someone say closed eyes. All right. You guys are paying attention. Then he said to them, what are these things you are discussing with one another as you're walking along? I I love how Jesus always asks questions he knows the answer to. They stood still looking gloomy. Then the one named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that happened there in these days? Jesus says to them, What kind of things? Remember, he wasn't there for three days. He doesn't know. And they said to him, The things about Jesus of Nazareth who was a prophet, powerful in deed and word before God and all the people, how the ruling priests and our leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they executed him. But we were hoping that he was the one about to redeem Israel. Beside all this, today is the third day since these things happened. So they're recanting to the one who's raised about the death of Jesus. They can't tell it's him kind of blinders do they have on? That would be spiritual, yes. That they cannot recognize Jesus. He said he was in another form. And they can't see it, and they're talking about their hope deferred, and they're talking about being gloomy. There's a moment there where their heart is sick. There is something about when you've lost hope in the Lord that will cause gloominess to cover you to such an extent that it will blind you to the hope that's around you. Because they saw something not go the way they thought it would go, it blinded them to the hope in front of them. There are moments where you walk through things in your life where things have not gone according to your plan or how you think it should happen if the Lord is in it. And when you lose hope, you lose sight. And when you lose sight, you can't see he's right in front of you. 
their resurrection, their hope, their purpose, the truth, the proof that he is who he said he was is talking to them and they can't see. There are people who will come into this building and some people will see the Lord. They'll hear the Lord. They'll have a life-changing encounters and others will look on and say, I saw nothing. They're as blind as a bat and they got no radar. They don't know which way to go. You know, I post on social media the, the miracles that happen. I try to clip them and I try to show them. And I'm going to talk about why I do that because I feel like it's so necessary for us as a church culture to grab this. But it's amazing how many people will respond with blind eyes. They're watching a miracle and they can't see it. They're watching the Holy Spirit move and they can't see it. And I get frustrated. They're in the presence and they can't sense it. And I get frustrated. And I've been talking to the Lord about it. I'm like, Lord, these people, I don't have a hope for them. I believe you can do it, Lord. Help my unbelief. For them, not for him. And I'm frustrated over it. And the Lord's begun to teach me some things that I feel is good for all of us. But in particular, it's helped me to process through what does that look like because I get frustrated. And I had someone message me on one of the posts with the dancing baptism. And they messaged me and they're like, you're being kind of snarky back to people. And I'm like, well, they started it. <laughs> and they're like, you know, we've never, some of us have never seen anything like this. You didn't explain anything. You didn't teach us anything. You didn't, you know, walk us through. Like, we've never seen this, and it caught us off guard, and you're saying this is the Holy Spirit, and instead of, like, helping us to understand it, you're just firing back. And I stopped, and I went, that's fair. That's fair. You've never seen this. You're blind to it. And I said, I can be more patient. And I wrote back, I said, that's a fair, that's fair. I can be more patient in the future when I put a video that might be startling to people that have never seen this. I can stop and I can explain to them and teach them and walk them through it, understanding they don't understand what they're seeing, what's happening. And, and I think that's what's happening on the road to Emmaus, because let's read on here. They don't see. They don't see. And it says here, they put him to death. But we were hoping, in 21, but we were hoping that he was the one about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. So we're on day three. But also some women among us amazed us. Early in the morning, they were at the tomb. When they didn't find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he's alive. Some of those with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but did not see him. So they get a good, they're gloomy. They've had a report. 
Someone has testified to what God has done, and they've chosen not to believe it. They even went so far as to go watch the video. I mean, go check the tomb. They saw it, and they said, ah, I don't believe it. And they're in disbelief still. They've, they, they heard someone says, I've been healed of cancer. Oh, really? Show me the doctor report. They see the doctor report, and they still make an excuse. I was telling my son about the time in my life many years ago where I was going through a hard season of my life, probably the worst, and I couldn't run my business anymore. I just had no motivation anymore. I, I would lay in bed, and I woke up after six months of kind of lying around going, you know, I think my money's going to run out at some point. And I don't seem to have any motivation to run my business anymore. Um, I better go just take a job for whatever long this season is. I just need to work. My bills are covered. I'm not eating into the money I've saved. And um, uh, I just need to do something where someone tells me what time to be there and what to do. Something where I don't have to motivate myself. Um, so a friend of mine needed me to give him a ride to a job interview. And I took him to Cisco Foods and... Uh, he was applying, and I'm like, you know, this is pretty good money. I mean, I could do this. It's kind of a mindless job, if that makes sense. I don't, I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean like it's just a repetitive kind of job. Loading pallet jacks. Driving a pallet jack. I called it mini race car jack. And so I got a job driving a pallet jack through a freezer the size of a football field. And I, you had to wear these big freezers, you know, big winter suits. The Kenyan would freeze to death in two minutes flat. <laughs> but like these giant puffy stay puff marshmallow suit, right? And, and you, you wore the winter socks. And, and I had a goatee at the time and I would drive through there and you had to, you had to make your time and load as fast as you possibly could. And, and the whole time I worked there, I never once loaded in time. You'd have like two minutes and 45 seconds to load this pallet jack. <laughs> but you'd go into the freezer, normal. You'd come out, and I would literally have frost crystals on my goatee. Like it would be covered in snow. And, and you would come out, and because you're in this suit, you would sweat right away, and that sweat would go down in your feet. You'd go back into the freezer, and that sweat would turn into ice. And so at lunchtime, you had to thaw everything out and dry your socks because you had frozen feet, iced feet. I'm like, this is the worst job I've ever had. And I realized real quickly, I should figure out how to get motivated. But all of a sudden, three weeks into it, like, I still wasn't there yet. Three weeks, you know, I'm driving this thing, and, and I reach up for a box, uh, 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 frozen boxes that are on the second shelf, and they fall. And they're like 20-something pounds each, and the entire stack falls on me, hits me in the head. Uh, uh, I try to catch them. It bends me and hurts my back, but it tears two discs in my neck. I, I end up having to go through a series of, of medical situations for the next two years where I couldn't lift my head off of my pillow for a couple of years. In the morning when I woke up, my head would not come off the pillow. I would have to strategically 
roll and land on my feet. I could not physically lift my head. It was that much pain. And then one day I got smart and I started laying a towel on my pillow at night. And then in the morning, I would grab the towel and I'd pull my head up. So I figured out either that or Rachel had to lift my head off of the pillow for me in the morning to get me up out of bed. Right? I went there so I wouldn't be depressed. <laughs> so after I get hurt, I go through some workman's comp, and then I'm like, I can't, I can't do this. I can't live. This is not going to get better. I've torn two discs. Discs don't regenerate. The doctors wanted to do a spinal fusion. They, that's where they take dead man's bones or some of your hip bone and put it in your... They got better technology now, but this was barbaric days, Okay. Back in the medieval times, I know some of you youth are like, oh, it's like 1500s or whatever, Pastor Ryan. So, yeah, they wouldn't put dead people bone in there. Now they got like cool 3D printed stuff. And so, then they're like, there's no, it might make it worse. And they said, because of your youth, it's going to collapse your spine. And just slowly over the years, your spine's going to collapse from the weight. And you won't be able to turn your head at all. I'm like, this, this sounds great. So I, I was like, you know what? I'll deal with the pain. There was a 25% uh, chance it would ruin my vocal cords, and that's when I'm out. I'm like, no, thank you. I'm a singer. My only hope was singing. I, I don't need a good strong neck for singing. I need good vocal cords, though. And so I'm like, I can't do this work anymore, so I got a job at Sprint PCS. I remember when it was Sprint PCS, and I was a customer service rep. And I was stuck on a headset. And for me, somebody who can't even like sit still for five minutes, I got to move. It was, that was the worst. That was the worst. And glued to a headset. And literally that job, anyone that was off of a phone and could walk freely, you were like, they're my goal in life. If I could only be off of the headset, I will have arrived. And, and sometimes I would think that and go, oh my gosh, man, what a low bar I have set for myself suddenly just not to have to be glued to a headset with a wire. <laughs> and so I remember being there as I was going through that recovery and people would ask to pray for me, by the way, for my healing. And I would tell them no all the time. Why did I tell them no? I was like, this hurts. I've gone through it a lot. There is a workman's comp case. You could pray for me the second the case is settled and I get my money. I'm like, you are not praying for me right now, and I lose that case. No, thank you. I was like, so you can wait. So sure enough, what happened was is I won the case, got settled, and God healed me. God healed me. I'm not saying that's the order you should do it, but God did it. <laughs> God healed me. And I went to the neurologist, and he told me, we're going to have to spinal fuse this, da-da-da-da. And I said, no, 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 no. I'll find a different way. I got faith that God... Uh, uh, can help me with this. And at the time I wasn't walking and healing or any of that kind of stuff, but I believed. And he said this to me, he goes, um, your discs are not like lizard's tails. They don't grow back. It doesn't regenerate. And I said, all due respect, I'll come back here in a year and we're going to have a conversation. But when I come back in a year, my neck will be healed. And he's like, okay. A year later, I tried to make an appointment. He wouldn't take my appointment. But I have discograms and MRIs and things that, like, I literally have showing. They, they, they put me through a discogram. Anybody gone, gone through a discogram? Okay, it's, for some of you, faint of heart, you may want to, 
you may not want to listen to this, but they put you on a table and they paralyze you. Not put you to sleep, paralyze you. So you can't move. And then they take a giant needle and they stick it through the front of your neck into your disc. And they squirt purple dye into it. And if there's something wrong with your disc, it hurts really, really bad. And you yell really, really loud. And depending on the level of pain you experience when they're squirting that in there, they go, oop, something's wrong with that one. And they take a picture of that one. Apparently, they don't have enough pictures just to shoot them all without it. But they're like, okay, he's screaming real loud. So they give you this paralyzer that it's also supposed to give you amnesia from the event. Except drugs don't work on me. My body was paralyzed. My mind was fully awake. And so afterwards, when I woke up, the doctor's like, how you doing? I was like, pretty good, but your conversation with your nurses was really inappropriate. Do you always talk about personal stuff like that with patients? You remember that? Every word. You're not supposed to know that. I was like, no, I was laying there paralyzed while you were stabbing me and going, he's screaming real good right now. I felt everything. It was horrible. The in-between of that season was hard, man. I couldn't lift my head off a pillow, and I had elected to not have surgery. And so the, the, what I was told was, this will be the rest of my life. I was told I'll never lift 10 pounds above my head for the rest of my life. In the middle place, where's your faith? In the middle of waiting for a promise, where's your hope? Or will hope deferred make your heart sick? So I was determined this will not be my future. And God healed me of it. And I have the med medical evidence. But still they criticize. Can't be possible. It can't be possible. And so it frustrates me when literally there's evidence staring at you. There's the testimony of people. And yet people on the internet will still say, oh, those are paid actors. How many thousands of people are getting paid? And where are these pastors getting that kind of money? I need to give a tithing message or something because I don't have enough money to pay everyone to fake it. Y'all need to up that. <laughs> and nobody has ever come out and said, I was paid to say that. Never. Not one person has ever come out and said, I've been paid. You ever seen anybody come out and there's been an exposure of how they had a ring of people in, uh, that they were paying people to falsely Have you ever heard that once? Never. Maybe once. I know what happens in Nigeria. That's true. Almost never. If one of you have heard it, it's the rarity. Yeah, they don't see it, and, and, and I get frustrated over that. Lord, why can't they see the truth? And the Lord began to deal with me about this road to Emmaus. Seven miles in his, seven miles in his shoes. So it says here, this is what he said. So they, they see that, they, they hear the good report, but they can't believe it. So they heard the report, they saw the evidence, and they still couldn't believe it. They, they, they heard me say my testimony about my neck. I can show them the MRIs and the discograms where you can see the tears in my neck. I can tell them how I was told I'll never lift 10 pounds above my head for the rest of my life. And then I go to the gym and bench 270. Thank you very much. 
Somebody was supposed to be like, yeah, like nothing. Guys are not ready. (sighs) 270 pounds on the bench press. Yes. Told I would never lift 10 pounds. That's 260 more for you. There you go. Okay. Online, they were celebrating me. They were with me. Thank you, Zoomers. Uh, but they still can't see. And, and, and rather than stay in this frustrated state, because what can happen is that we can allow the false accusations of the enemy. And so even though I'm right about what I'm saying, my attitude, my frustration is not what the Lord wants for me. He doesn't want me living in that frustration of that in-between place. You know, there's persecution that comes against you. No, we're not facing things like what Israel is facing right now. Our persecution looks nothing like what Israel is facing right now. That's real persecution. We are not going through genocide. So I'm like, Lord, you need to help my frustration. I'm watching these news reports and I'm seeing what's happening to Israel over there. You know, and I'm a Jew, so my heart goes out for them. And we pray for them and we war for them. And it's like, but I'm frustrated over these little things that don't count for much. And the Lord teaches me. They can't see. Because their eyes are blind. Like the road to Emmaus. And Jesus said to them in verse 25, Oh foolish ones, so slow of heart to put your trust in all that the prophets spoke. Was it not necessary for Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? See, there is a place that you are in where all you have is the word of promise spoken in your life. And you can choose to latch on to that or you can latch on to the desert sand around you that will kill the promise in your life. You can grab a hold of what was spoken over you or you can grab a hold of the moment you are in. You don't live for the past word. The past word feeds your present. A hope of a future feeds your present. Here's the truth. What you are upset about has already passed by the time you're upset about it. You have already moved on. I'm upset because you said that thing. Why? It's in the past. It doesn't matter. It's in the past. It's a quote from a very famous poet, Rafiki. (laughs) So it says here, Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things written about himself in all the scriptures. So Jesus, because they cannot see, he does something. He begins to instruct them in the word of God. He begins to show them that it was recorded. So he explains it. See, and I realized, and the Lord was like, hey, you need to stop when when something's happening, when God is doing something. Jesus has been resurrected. This was promised. This is what it's supposed to look like. I know it doesn't look like you think it is because you don't know how to process the word of God. 
And so there are people out there that read the Bible and never understand it. And so they're like, that's nowhere in the Bible. Yes, it is. But see, Jesus was patient with them. And he said, you don't know. These are the things that the prophet spoke. And he walked them through the scriptures and taught them. When people challenge your faith, when they come against the power of God active in your life, you have to have the patience to walk them through the word. And you have to know it. I don't need to know the word. I just need to do the word. You need to know it because you need to be able to help them to see. You can do it. You can pray for someone and they get healed. But what about the person that doesn't believe in that, that needs you to walk them through the word so that you can explain it? That's the next level for you. It's not just to see someone get healed, but to see other people set free from that healing. To see other people encounter the Lord because they saw the miracle. People follow Jesus because he performed miracles. It wasn't just for the one he performed miracles, but he captured a lot more. It was not a fishing line to one. It was a net. And it, each one caught many. That's good right there. So he explained the word to him, but it doesn't say when he explained the word to him, their eyes were open. So I've gone through the scriptures and people will challenge that still. Okay, they approached the village where they were, they were going, and he acted as though he was going further. But they urged him, saying, stay with us, for it's nearly evening and the day is already gone. So he went in to stay with them. And it happened when he was cling, uh, reclining at the table with them, he took the matzah, offered the prayer, and breaking it, he gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and disappeared from them. So he's walking with them and they cannot see him. Their promise, their hope, their trust was standing in the room. Their miracle, the thing they were praying for was in front of them and they couldn't see. And their eyes were closed to it. He explained to them the scriptures that the Messiah must die. They've heard the report that he's raised. They've heard the scriptures that it must happen. They still can't see. But then he gives them bread. It says, then he takes bread. He walks them through communion. He gives them bread and their eyes are open. The word of God says this. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So there are people in your life that can't understand what you've seen. That can't understand what God has done through you. That can't understand when you say, well, the Lord told me. Oh, got to stop right there. That's a red flag. You believe you have some new revelation over the word. No, it must line up with the word. Jesus walked them through the scriptures to show them. What he was opening their eyes to came with the word first. Someone say word first. It doesn't go away from the word. It never does or it's not him. But see, people that are ignorant of the word will combat you on it. And so he walks with them. He's there in their, in their midst, and they can't sense him. There are people that have gathered in here, and they're like, I, 
I don't know about this. You can't sense it. He's here. Other people see him. You don't. I'm not criticizing you. I'm trying to open your eyes. He explains the scriptures to him how the scriptures support this. They still can't see him. They want to believe, but they can't see him. They hear the report. They hear the testimony of someone saying, God healed my neck. They still can't see him. But it's not until they taste that they see. Some of the issue with people is that their eyes will never be open until they decide to take a taste for themselves. You cannot just look on and say, well, I looked and I didn't see anything. That's because you have spiritual blinders on. There is a veil in front of you. You cannot see because you will not taste. There is a season on the church right now where walking through the door means tasting and seeing. That the Lord is good and that his word is true. There is a necessity for you to step out of the back shadow and actually experience the presence. Well, I didn't, I didn't feel anything. Who, who prayed for you? Who prayed for you? I didn't see anyone get healed. Something wrong with you? Why don't you pray for someone to get healed? See if anyone gets healed. Taste and see. It wasn't until they actually partook with him and tasted. The word says that this is my body that is broken for you, the bread of life. He is the bread of life and he breaks bread with them and he hands it to them. And when they eat and taste and share a meal, you know, I think it's powerful. It says that the disciples got together and they broke bread. And when they did, there's something about that breaking of bread. There's something about partaking in it, not just witnessing it, but being involved in it so if you come to church every single week and you watch but you don't participate I can tell I can look around a room real easy without even a prophetic discernment and tell who can't see the Lord by the way they worship because they're not tasting anything they're not even trying to taste it I, I we were doing the carpet remodel yesterday and uh, uh, Lillian and Dean were helping me do the, the, the carpet remodel and those people killed themselves. They showed up here and did it a second day when all of us couldn't bend over straight. We, we, Dean was doing this and then he'd do this. And then he'd do this and then do this. He's like, it hurts when I'm here. It hurts when I'm here. So I just keep going back and forth between them. <laughs> hurts, change, change. Lillian's hurting, we're hurting, but they're there. And, and I come in and I'm eating, uh, I'm eating uh, uh, manna from heaven. It's a bagel, lox, and cream cheese. That's smoked salmon, which is as close to glory as, as, as you can get in food. Okay, that is taste and see. Uh, that's the bread of life. It's a food group, yeah, yeah, yes. A bagel and smoked salmon, like that, and cream cheese. It's locks. They're, they're different, but I say that because most people are like, I don't know what locks is. So, um, bonus points. Um, so I walk in there and I'm like eating my bagel and she's like, what is that? And I was like, it's bagel, cream cheese, and locks. And she's like, what's locks? And I was like, smoked salmon. And she was like, 
Like, what is wrong with you? You have, you have like, raw fish on a bagel with cream. That doesn't even make any sense. Like, you could tell she was like, I'm mortified by your choices right now, Pastor, and I don't know if I can follow you or come to this church anymore. There was a moment where she had to process through it. It was, it was and she shook it off. You know, she's like, okay. And I was like, you want a bite? And she's like, oh, no. And I'm like, you don't even know what it tastes like. She's like, I know I don't want to taste that. She didn't want to take a bite. And I'm like, this is heaven on a plate. Right? I look at that and I think, if this was the fruit hanging from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I would have fallen too. It makes sense. And I'm like, you won't even taste it. And there's been a ton of times in my life where, where one of my favorite, my favorite food, one of my favorite foods, by far my favorite food is sushi. Okay, I love sushi. Thank you, that's good. Out of all the good things I said today, that's the applause. That's the one I get applause for. Bunch of, gosh, man. Lord, let me get frustrated. They don't know. They don't know. They haven't seen. They don't see. They don't see. Okay. All right. Yeah, masa ball soup's number two for sure. All right. Y'all need to get with it. Okay. So people are like, oh, I don't like sushi. I'm like, you ever eaten sushi? No. If you have eaten good sushi and you don't like it, that's fine with me. I'm okay with you not liking it. I'm just saying that to be nice to you. I'm still not okay with it. But, but I can have grace. Uh, um, so I, I'm like, you've never eaten it. So I've made friends of mine throughout the years. I'm like, okay, you have to try sushi. You can't tell me you don't like it. You've never tried it. And, they're, and I say, here's the rule. You got to try it three times with me. You have to let me take you three times. I think some of them suckered me. They like sushi. They just got me to take them three times. I don't care. I was all in. I'm like, you're suckering me and I don't care. Doing it. <laughs> 15 of you are going to walk up to me afterwards. I hate sushi, Pastor. I hate it. So I've never had it. So it won't work today because I'm on to your games. All right. So, so I'm like, you got to go three times. The first time you'd be like, mm-mm, that's not for me. Mm-mm. Second time I take you, you'd be like, uh, um, I mean, it wasn't terrible, but I don't like it. Third time, you're like, that tastes good, but I wouldn't ask for it. And then all of a sudden, my phone rings, and they're like, hey, man, you want to go get some sushi? <sighs> Am I telling the truth? Telling the truth. Every now and then it backfires, but like I have like a 98% success rate with that. Okay? There's some people in the room, they're like, that's true. That's, that's how it happened. Okay? So I know. I will take it. Because here's the thing is that you cannot say you don't like something you've never tried. You don't know what you don't know until you taste and see. And so that might have looked strange to Lillian. She might not have liked it, but it looked strange. But she wouldn't sample it. And there's something, and that's okay with food, but there's something about people in this world that they can see the evidence. They can watch someone take a bite and say, oh, that's good. That is delicious. That's my favorite. And they will still be blind to how good it can be for them. And they do that in the body of Christ and they see that you've been healed, set free, changed. Chains have broken off of you. Depression is gone. Anxiety is gone. Sickness is gone. Infirmity is gone. Brokenness is gone. That childhood that ruined you is now gone in the name of Jesus. And they can still not see. They can still not see. They can still not see. 
because they live from a place where they're looking back at their brokenness. These two disciples are on their way to Emmaus, and the other disciples are caught up in disbelief, and we give Thomas a bad name. We call him Doubting Thomas, while all of them doubted. These two doubted. Peter doubted. Peter denied him. But we don't call him denying Peter, do we? Why don't we call him denying Peter? Why does Thomas get labeled as doubting Thomas, but Peter not denying uh, Peter? You know what the difference is between the two? I was like, Lord, why? The reason why we don't call him denying Peter is because that's not where we read the end of Peter's story. The word tells us what Peter goes on to do. But that's where Thomas's story ends. We don't really read about what Thomas does after that much. We hear things like the disciples. You know when it says the disciples, they're talking about Thomas too. And I don't know if you guys know this, but literally in the word, um, when, when Jesus appears to Thomas, it says they all were doubting. If you read all the accounts, all four Gospels, it gives us a more full picture. Jesus says he gets on to them for their doubt. He, he, he points out Thomas in his particular doubt because Thomas literally says, I won't believe till I touch this, the, the scars. And we call him Doubting Thomas. And we put a, a reputation on him that he doubted Jesus. But the disciples were allowed to doubt Mary. She said, he's resurrected, and they didn't believe. Then the disciples tell Thomas, who wasn't there, he's resurrected, and Thomas doesn't believe, and he gets labeled as a doubter. He learned it from them. They were in doubt the whole time. All of them. But Thomas doubted one time too many. He didn't doubt Jesus, he doubted them. He says, I won't do it. You know, it's interesting. But the reason why we call him that is because we don't read about the rest of his story. We don't see it in the word of God. So this is not the word of God, but it is a historical account of what we uh, historically think is accurate about the life of Thomas after the moment where he touches the scars and he's transformed. We read in this and we think about Peter if you categorize it, we'll say Peter was the disciple or the, the, the evangelist of, of Israel. He, he was for the Jews. He went other places as well, but predominantly he was there in Israel. And Paul was the, the apostle to the Gentiles, right? That's what we say. Well, we know what Tom, because we see it in scripture. Paul wrote us a bunch of letters. Thomas didn't really. There is a book of Thomas, but that's a different story. But see, most people don't know what happened with Thomas. He stayed in the church for a while, but then the Lord called him to the Gentiles. And in fact, it's said that in historical documents, it's said that he went to India and evangelized India. And the reason why there's a presence of Christianity in that part of the world, even up into, deep into Asia, is because Thomas was a missionary to India. In fact, today, in the nation of India, the name Tama, not with an S, it's a little different, their, 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 their gender, 
The name Tama is still a popular name to this very day after St. Thomas, who they say is the saint of India. He went to India. You know, you can't go to India right now. It's, one of the, it's, it's literally the fifth most hostile place in the world to Christianity and climbing. Thomas went in there when there was no Christianity as a base. There's a base now of Christianity there. And yet it's still hostile to it. And Thomas goes in there when it's the most hostile. And he evangelizes to India to a point that people are still naming their kids in India after him. Here's the amazing thing. He says, I won't believe until I touch the scars. Maybe you've heard me say this. Maybe this is your first time. But there's something powerful about that. See, in the Old Testament, when you made a covenant with someone, the way you would come into covenant with someone, if you and another family decided, hey, we're going to link up and we're going to come into contract, not contract, but covenant together, which is better than a contract. And your enemies will be my enemies and your friends will be my friends and your family will be my family. And if something happens to you, I've got your back. And there is a covenant together is the, the, they would cut their hands and then they would, they would exchange blood. I don't recommend doing this, but you could do, you could do spit brothers if you want, (laughs) but they would cut their hands and then they would shake and they would grab each other's arm and lock arms. And sometimes they would tie a cord around it to bond them together. They would exchange coats. They would take off their robe and put it on the other one as a covering that says, I'm covering you and I'm making a covenant with you and I'm covering you that anyone that sees you knows it's me you're in covenant with. And they would cover them and the strength of that person went on to that person and Jesus put a robe of righteousness onto your back. It's a covenant marker. But they would take those scars where they bled and they would pick up dirt and they would rub dirt into the scar uh, or into the wound so that it would scar. They would rub it in there so that it couldn't heal properly. It had to work the dirt out and had to work around all that. I'm not suggesting that's the hygiene approach, okay? But they would do it and it would cause a scar to form. And the point of the scar is that any time that someone would come up to that man and say, I'm coming against you, and they saw that scar, they knew in order to come up against that family, that man, that them, that household, that they were going to have to face whoever that scar's partner was. They were going to have to face the twin scar. Who's the twin of this scar? Who's the other one who carries a scar that this man is in covenant with? And if I come against him, I come against him. I will face both of them because the scar. So Thomas probably understood a Jewish covenant that if this man has paid for a covenant and he has bled and been wounded for our transgressions to save us and set us free, there should be a scar that I know he paid for the covenant. He says, I won't believe. Remember what he says. He's, he's resurrected from the dead. And Thomas doesn't say, what about his wounds? How's it going? Thomas hasn't seen him. He says, I won't believe until I touch the scars. Somehow Thomas already knows their scars. 
Jesus raises from the dead. He doesn't heal the scars. I want you to get that. Jesus brings his dead body back to life. Doesn't heal a few blemishes. He didn't heal the scars on purpose because it's the sign of the covenant. When he stretches out his hand to you, the scars of his covenant saying, I fight your battles for you are there. And so Thomas comes up and touches his side. Do you know where that scar came from? A spear that pierced Jesus' side. Do you know how Thomas died in India? He was ran through with a spear. His faith was restored when he touched the scars of a spear and he met Jesus at the hand of a spear. You know, the martyrs' deaths are so life-changing if you study them. There are a lot of them like that. And we think, oh, a tragic end. If you understood the disciples, they had no worry about dying. They had no worry about dying. They were not concerned with their future. They knew the hope of their future. Their future was not a thought process to them. Can, can I say this to you? Because there's a lot of people that we live in our past. We live by the things that happened to us that haunt us. They happened, but they don't have to haunt. Or we live for the future. We're so nervous about what's going to happen that all it's always doom and gloom. What's coming next is going to be terrible. And we don't just live in the present. If you're battling with depression then you are living in the past. If you are battling with anxiety, then you are living in the future. There is peace for you in the present. When you are present in the present, there's peace in it. You might be going through a bad season. It can be a sad day, a tough day, a hard day, like the road to Emmaus. It can be a hard moment, but what you're walking through right now passes in a second. And if you will remain in the present, there is hope there. Does that mean you don't plan for your future? Yes, you plan for your future. You don't live in it. Does that mean you never talk about the, I just shared my testimony about my neck from my past. So that mean you never, you never share your past. You share your past. You testify of what God has done, but you can't live there. Amen. You cannot live in past wounds and you can't live in past glories. There are a lot of people in church that are either living for past wounds or living for past glories. You can't live in the past. You cannot live in the future. You have to live in the now. There has to be a living in the now. Our past is only a remnant of a memory. Our future will actually never come. Our present is a present. It's a gift. Each now moment is unique. No two moments in your entire life will ever be identical. Did you know that? This moment right here that you're experiencing, in this very second, you will never get to relive this moment again. 
Oh, you could come back to church and you can sit in that same seat, but it'll never be this moment. It'll never have all of the details that exist right now. It will never have the season. It'll never have the day you have this week. It'll never have the conversation that led up to you going, I got to get to church. It'll never have the good and the bad. This moment is unique and it will never exist again. And we squander it thinking about what may come or thinking about what did come and we don't live now. And we miss now. We miss the unique experience to know what it's like to overcome, to struggle, to smile. Whatever the season is, we miss the unique opportunity to live in the now. Thinking about the whens and the what will be's and the what was's and how it might happen again. Do you know fear is insane? Fear. There's a part of fear that is a survival mechanism, which is healthy, right? That guy looks dangerous. We should avoid him. There's a survival mechanism, but beyond the natural survival mechanism of fear, all other fears are actually insanity. You're having an emotional response to something that has not happened, and you have no way of knowing if it will. Anybody in here ever accidentally almost gotten to a wreck? Right? And you're, <gasps> right? You, ever, fear comes up inside of you, and then you don't. Right? That, that's a normal human response. We've all felt that, right? And then you recognize you felt an emotion for an event that never happened. You prepared yourself to hit, and it never happened. And so you have an anxiety response from a future that never came. And that's normal for all of us, but some of us live our lives that way, not just a, a startle. It's normal, a fight or flight, uh, a survival mechanism uh, that, that happens in a moment like that. But some of us live in that moment. I imagine the disciples in those three days, they were concerned about what they had seen and what God had done, their past. They knew the testimonies, but they couldn't see their future. And they were anxious and depressed because they were not living in the now moment where Jesus was alive again. You need to live in the now moment. The Bible says this in Matthew 24, 42. Keep watch because you do not know what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch. So you would not have broken into his house. It doesn't say to have your eyes on the future. It says be ready now. Keep watch. When? Now. Live in the now. You don't know when it's coming, so be ready now. Are you supposed to be ready in five years for your future, or are you supposed to be ready now? Be ready now, so when your future shows up, you're ready. You live in the now. You prepare for your future. You do not live there. You live in the now. Luke 9.62 says this, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Alternatively, we are warned not to be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. God wants us in the now. Are you here with me right now? Are you in this moment or are you thinking about what's next? Don't move on to next and don't move on to back. Be here right now. 
We want to pray for you. Send us a message with your prayer requests through Facebook or email and let us know how we can pray for you today. Also, let us know how this message impacted your life. I love you. God loves you. Shalom. Shalom.